0: So yeah, you said finding your period out of yes. context. That sounds,
1: it does sound fine. really weird, right? <laughs> just when you're like, yes, make sure you find your period. <laughs> but when somebody's asking, when you're answering a question, a lot of times people will ramble on, um, inadvertently because they feel like they haven't, you know, finished the point or whatever. And the idea is just find a place to end what you're saying and be comfortable with that and let it go.
0: So the counter argument to that yeah. is what if you're <laughs> someone like me? Whose brain does not function that quickly?
1: <laughs>
0: okay. it's more of an in the moment thing. When well, you got to practice, it'll it. stop in the middle of a sentence.
1: <laughs> well, well, okay. There, I, I will. I will tell you anecdotally. There is a wrong place to stop, um, <laughs> but there's also generally more right places to stop. So, you if you work hard, you might find the wrong place, um, or it might just happen for you. Maybe you have a natural talent. That'll be great to see. Uh, <laughs> That'll be fun for all.
0: We'll give it a try. Yes. Someone will get half a sentence. Yeah. And uh, I'll just stare at them and wait for them to. <laughs> <know>. <laughs> That's really good.
1: So. Really good. You can also find your ellipsis, yes. right? So you find your, you're like, hey, I found my comma. I'm going to. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> 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 Go out in space.
0: Okay. Enough chit chat. We've got a big guest today. Despite his calm demeanor, this man is a big name in horror. He's an accomplished author of seven novels and two collections of short stories. He's been published in the LA Times, New York Times, Entertainment Weekly, Boston Globe, and a number of anthologies. He's won the prestigious Bram Stoker Award, British Fantasy Award, Massachusetts Book Award, and Sheridan Le Fanu Award. His novel, Cabin at the End of the World, was adapted into last year's M. Night Shyamalan film, A Knock at the Cabin. His new novel, Horror Movie, is set to be released later this year. This guy's doing all right. Let's welcome Massachusetts native Paul Tremblay. Good morning. Hey, morning. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate oh, it. Oh, sure. Yeah.
2: No, uh, happy to be here. Are you on break right now? Yeah. Today is sort of like the official first day because we got out on Friday. I'm not counting the weekend as break because I get that anyway. No, no, no,
1: that That doesn't count. Not right. at all. Although I do. I end up working on the weekends a lot, so I don't know how you trade that off. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. The teaching side of things, right? Yeah. Writing side of things, right? Then I work. Oh, well, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Are you actually able to get out of teaching side of things on the weekends as well
2: um, yeah, for for the most part, I, I've got it. you know, maybe sometimes I'll have correcting on set while I'm watching football games, but... You teach math, correct? I do, yes. What level? Uh, so it's high school normally, you know, it can change, but typically I teach a couple of geometries and, uh, some you know, AP calculus as well. Mm.
0: Okay. That's a, a weird way to split your brain between creative <laughs> writing and <laughs> practical math.
2: Yeah, no, it's hard to explain how, how it all happened, but, uh... It happened. <laughs> but you enjoy it? Uh, yeah. You know, I'd, but, I'd like to try writing full time at some point, but yeah, gotcha. co- college is expensive. <laughs>
1: uh, that, that's really funny. I was thinking, I am just looking up your uh, bio, I know you're in Vermont, right? Oh, no, I, uh, I'm i just outside of Boston. Uh, okay. I'm called Stoughton, uh, but I went to graduate school in Vermont. Oh, uh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, my, yeah. Uh, my sister went to Dartmouth and she just randomly came across one of her old bills from college. Oh, yeah. Uh, from 1987. Uh, and it's like $14. <laughs> it was thir- – the tuition was $13,000 and room and board for the year was $4,000. Wow. So she yeah. was eighteen grand for a year to go to, to uh, Ivy League school. It's like, holy moly. What a, what yeah. a deal. That's not what
2: my – that's what, my daughter's a freshman at Skidmore and that's not what it's costing. Yeah, there <laughs> you go.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. My mom actually just randomly – but my mom was a uh, math teacher as well. She was a professor yeah. at the University of Delaware, So, which was – Okay. Awesome growing up, like, because um as she would say, she taught, you know, math to kids who like, she taught algebra to kids who couldn't get it by the time they were in college, still couldn't get it and we yeah. get them to get it, so to speak. So um, yeah, that was awesome. Very cool to have that in the house. And so that's yeah. so we did the whole thing, went up through AP Calc and all that.
0: Mm-hmm. So cool. are you one of those people that, uh you know, works full time and then goes home and writes for six hours every night?
2: Oh, six hours? Hell no, even when I'm not, <laughs> even if it's a day off, like I... So partly for me, it's like, you know, if I can get an hour or two in, that's great. Even last year, I had a year sabbatical. You know, I, I was writing for more, but, you know, I would find I would get really sort of writerly tired after two, mm-hmm. two and a half hours. Yeah, maybe you take a walk and then maybe sure. go back at it in the afternoon. But
0: yeah, it's like Anna I to build
2: up the muscle, <laughs> you know.
0: Yeah, certainly. Uh, I, I totally know how that is. I mean, you've read all those things, I'm sure, that say, you know, creatives need, what is it, like two to four hours? You Know solid time to pull out of what's in your head, and then past that, you're just going to be staring at the page or at the wall. Or,
2: yeah, I mean, it's I, I tend to ignore all that stuff because you know, every writer I've met is different. Like, I have a friend who's an amazing writer, Jeremy Robert Johnson, who uh just would binge write like <laughs> hole up in a hotel for like three days and just consume caffeine awesome. and sugar and write like 19 hours a day. It's like I could never do that, but I that's what he does.
1: I can totally <laughs> I see I, I, I'm not a writer like that, but I, yeah. I feel like if I were, I feel like I would be that guy. Because I feel like yeah. once, once it starts flowing, it's like I can't, can't, don't want it to stop. I get in the zone. Yeah. I
0: think Jeremy's like that. Yeah. No, I need constant distractions <laughs> for like 30 <laughs> minutes at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, all right. Well, let's jump back into that in a second. I mean, so to start to from you the everything. beginning, you, uh, you were born in Colorado, but you grew up in Massachusetts.
2: Yes. Uh, my, <clears throat> My dad was in the Air Force, so I was you know born just outside of Denver. but you know we moved back to well I should say back he he grew up in beverly um you know he he moved back when I was like eleven months old so okay,
0: okay. You know, i have I have no living memory of <laughs> of Colorado, yeah, sure. I assumed you were raised by a coven of witches.
2: Uh, well, I mean, I know you can never be sure,
0: but I was not. Yeah. There's uh, there's more in Massachusetts than witches and witchcraft. Oh yeah. I, well, I don't know if there is much more. It's a pretty small state. <laughs>
2: right. That's awesome. Scratch great. tickets. There's a lot of scratch tickets in Massachusetts.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. My sister lives in uh, Arlington, uh, in Boston and, uh, uh-huh. so she, her house was built in like the... 1700s or something like that, like mm. parses, and it, and it feels very much like it was tacked on like throughout the, ce- you know, throughout the centuries. Um, but the basement, you walk in there and it is like f- maybe, maybe five feet high. Like oh, the yeah. of it. and, and it's got <laughs> just like the stone walls around and all that stuff. Right. So. Is
2: it like a dirt floor too? Or is that? Been, uh, you know, no, did it, it did actually dirt have, dirt. yes, it, it, it does okay. actually have a,
1: a floor floor. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> they do have other things up there.
2: I assume so. So <laughs> what was the town? Beverly, which is next to Salem, uh, yeah. you know where they, you know where Ironically. they did, you know kill and torture people as witches in the name of the state. Well, which I mean, is sort of like an odd thing to celebrate. In some ways, <laughs> it's not to say that I haven't. You know, I, when my early twenties, we would go to Salem, and it was a madhouse. I sure. yeah, it's an odd place if you've never been.
0: Uh, I have. I went to a wedding up there, shockingly, <laughs> and was I've it? been around there a few times. Was yeah. it a witch witch wedding? Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, it took place over a cliffside. Right. Okay. I feel like oh. <laughs> oh, cool. God, I thought you were serious for a second. Sorry. It's <laughs> <too> still cool. <laughs> early Monday morning. <laughs> to
1: be fair, there were witches, so you know
0: like, right. right. Well, I mean, they, it was yeah. a test to see whether or not they were witches. Right. Right. Well yeah.
1: Salem gets a bad rap, but I mean there were witches. If we had witches in Baltimore, there would have been the, you know, the Baltimore witch Brothers.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean it's sure. I mean strange going to now because I mean there's this historical <laughs> section, which is really cool, you know, and then this sort of like kitschy <laughs> witch thing has is, oh, you know, built God. up around it. Like, you know, there are yeah. Yeah, there are places that are actually, you know, would serve people who are into Wiccan, but there's also sort of like, you know, horror adjacent stuff. And actually one of the worst uh, tourist traps you could ever go to is the Salem Witch Museum. Uh,
0: (laughs) Yeah, I by it. Yeah,
2: it's really bad. bad. You know, and then like there are parts of the city that are sort of used to be, I don't know, sort of like blighted economically. I mean, because it is a fairly, it's not, you know, Worcester or Boston, but for the North Shore, it's actually quite large, you know, and then it's on the water. And so there's all sorts of... Weird schizophrenic stuff happening in Salem.
1: Right. right. I just want to go to the gift shop. I, I want to see what sort of tchotchkes they have yeah. there.
2: <laughs> I do love Count Orlock's uh, Count Orlock's museum. It's not a wax museum. It's but it's like it's, it's figures, but they're not made of wax. But uh, okay. yeah, it's it's really cool.
1: Uh, How does Orlock's? You said yeah, or, Count Orlock,
0: like Nosferatu. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, what was Beverly like? Similar? Was there spillover into that town, or was it a little more? Uh, Normal, I guess.
2: Um, that's fine. I mean, so it's slightly smaller, but still probably like in the high thirty thousands. You know, who knows? Maybe it's up to like forty these days. But, yeah, yeah, fairly fairly large area. You know, I would say it's probably like a well to do suburb. Maybe you know less then, but certainly much more so now. Um, but it was kind of quiet. You know, Salem actually was our high school rival. Oh, okay. Their high school, by the way, is Salem Witches. How could they not? On their helmet.
1: How could they not?
2: yeah so i mean the water was there you know the history the quote-unquote birthplace of the american navy mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but i don't know for me like it was just like hey this is this little you know somewhat quiet suburban town that i live in okay. i grew up across the street from the beverly school for the deaf Ooh. um so they had like some cool grounds that you know i would be able to to mess around in and have fun and explore
1: uh, that's true as a kid i'm sure it's nice to have a school right across the street regardless of its sort of yeah
2: i mean it, it wasn't like a, a super you know it wasn't like an elementary school or or a middle school or high school where it was you know just jam packed you know it was pretty specialized school all right so in
0: that realm you said your dad was in the military right
2: uh, i mean very briefly once he got out he, when he returned home he uh he started working at parker brothers the game manufacturer Oh, okay. But to me, that's a huge chunk of my local childhood as well as like you know childhood, childhood because yeah. the the factory, the original Parker Brothers factory was in Salem. I think they started in like the late teens. Yeah, that's when or late 1919s, I should say. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, my dad worked at the Parker Brothers toy factory for like twenty five years until my until my early twenties. So I know, that was always like as a kid, just I was like, oh, he works at this toy factory. He would come yeah. home with Nerf everything. Um, Amazing. Yeah, and he you know he, you know, he wasn't yeah. You know, he wasn't like a suit or anything there. You know, he worked, he started like in the assembly lines and sort of by the end of his tenure there, he was in charge of the mailroom kind of thing. And when I was in high school, uh, in some of my early years in college, I worked there in the summers. And it was kind of a fun atmosphere because everyone, you know, knew him and loved him. Um, And it was, it's sort of weird to describe a factory as like this place felt like a family because it was kind of small and everybody knew each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when the factory closed in 1991, I think they announced it was closing in 1991. I happened to be working there in the summer mm. and there you know hasbro had just bought out parker brothers so there were rumors but no one knew anything and i'll never forget they they called everybody into the cafeteria for an announcement and that included summer help and the people okay. have been there like my dad for over 25 years and they just summarily announced yeah we were purchased and we're closing the plant in two months oh, my gosh. um wow. yeah and then that, times. So that, that's how
0: they announce it yeah
2: and you know and that family vibe in the place just became like a you know, Death March dirge uh, yeah. for for the rest of the summer that I was working. There. It was really, it was part of the horror of that whole thing was seeing, <laughs> yeah. you know, all these people like, you know, obviously concerned and like just about, you know, I think everybody lost their job eventually. Like my dad sort of got transferred to the offices in Beverly for like a year or two, but eventually, you know, all those hundreds of people, yeah. you know, lost their job. And it was, you know, I always thought it was so unfair as a, for me, that was like my first real life lesson in capitalism corporate, and, and corporate big business. Capitalism.
1: Capitalism. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, like it
2: just seemed it was just patently unfair. Not only were they closing the plant, but like how was I learning <laughs> about the plant before all these adults who'd been yeah. working there, you know, their most right. of their adult lives at the same
0: time? You pick up early on that you are expendable, <laughs> <laughs> right? No. did you did you decide
1: to write that into a book per se? Oh, uh, I've <laughs> I write about that <laughs> moment all the time. No, yeah, yeah, even if I mean, I'm not writing about it. But no, I've. It's thinly veiled in, uh, yeah. in A uh, Head Full of Ghosts. Oh, sure. Yeah. I like, think like I named it Barber Brothers or something. All right. yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, as I was reading that, I was like, hmm, that seems really, really close. Oh, yeah. too yeah, to familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, is the true story. <laughs> that's okay. great. Do you find that that's uh, actually sort of cathartic in a way? Yeah. yeah it's funny. Like, I don't know how much if the cathartic thing works. Because for me, I
2: think it's more of like an obsession that I just continually pick at. And I don't necessarily – no, mm-hmm. if I get anything out of it, it's just I'm sort of awesome. continually drawn to these moments um, like a compulsion. So I don't think there's much catharsis and compulsion. <laughs> a good band name for you, catharsis. Yeah, right. Catharsis. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's
0: a good one. Okay, so I'm getting an image here. The 18 1900s shaped northeastern town that's kind of mm-hmm. suburbs, but everything's very old. Uh factory, not quite like the middle of the country, you know, we're talking Ohio, where you've got these like, uh steel mills.
1: That's what I was picturing, actually, as he was telling the factory story. I'm like, you know, I'm here, I'm here in Lake Billy Joel, and they're closing all the factories down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, but I've got a good picture of this. I can kind of see where this bleeds into your writing. But I mean, where do you start from there? Like, what led you to writing?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, that's a really hard thing to answer. You know, I would say like, well, you know, like so many people, I, I didn't have like a great school, high school experience, you know, socially, uh, yep. I was a super thin, bad skin, awkward teenager, didn't have a ton of friends. And, you know, I feel like I really sort of became who I was in college or, or felt comfortable enough. And I went away to, to uh, I went away. It sounds like I was packed away. I sort of was <laughs> to grad school for two years. And I don't know if it, got, it just got to the point where I was like, I was a such, uh, you know, music and and movies and stories in general were so important to me. You know, for so many people, that was sort of like the place you go not only to escape, but also to feel more like yourself. And I don't know. And weirdly, around the same time, like when I went to grad school, I first fell in love with reading for pleasure because I wasn't really much of a reader. Like I I was a good boy at school. I I did the assigned (laughs) readings, but I wasn't, you know, reading books on my own. I was too much a child of the cable television 1980s and just watching movies and mash reruns and Sure. or I was sitting on the floor with my speakers tented over my head listening to music that that was that, those were my teenage years. So anyway, I fell in love with reading at grad school and you know I had more free time to myself because my girlfriend was in Boston we were doing the like this is relationship you know, it's just a different social life than college and grad school I know I definitely had this want for a creative outlet so I was you know trying to learn how to play guitar during those two years in Vermont and then when I graduated after reading basically you know all the King books over those two years and Straub and Shirley Jackson and Barker I had this weird itch to try writing a story so for me the second half of the 90s you know they're both sort of very you know I've described them as, I don't know if hobby is the right word but probably is like I was messing around with music messing around with writing and unfortunately I figured out I was a better writer than musician mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so I stuck with that but I think it all boiled down to like, I don't know, hopefully everybody discovers this at some point in their life, but it's okay to like things, you know? Yeah. Because you know, when you're in high school, like it's, you don't want to be like a tryhard or a hardo or whatever, <laughs> whatever Never. term like your youth group is going to use. <laughs> you want to blend you find, in. like, Oh no, you know, as much as the internet says otherwise, it's actually okay to be passionate and like things.
1: Yeah. And indeed. for me,
2: that was always been the spark is like, that's, I love how that makes me feel. That's really cool. I want to try something like that. You know, once I found my way into writing and just did it consistently enough, it just became this you know part of me that I had to continue to to do.
0: That's great. I was very similar, you know, just didn't have such a hard time in high school, but like didn't want to stand out. It was just sort of there getting through afterwards, you know, once I'm in college and a little older, then... I realize like how much I love to love things, I wanted to pursue hobbies all the time. Yeah. It's just, you know, you're not held down by, I don't know, anyone else's opinions at that point.
1: I want to come back to the tented speakers over your head. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. yeah. That picture. yeah, yeah. I, I'm just that's a great picture for me. Uh what were you listening to? What's going out of there? Oh,
2: so <laughs> uh I think my my first huge obsession was seventh grade Def leopard pyromania. Oh, there you go. Um yeah, I remember what there was a tiny store in Beverly, downtown Beverly, called the Record Rack, and I would walk like two miles to the Record Rack to buy Def Leppard pins for my jean jacket kind of uh, thing. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't say I was full blown ha- hair metal. I mean, because it was more like I like Def Leppard. I did like the Scorpions too, mostly their older stuff. Cool. And eventually, you know, like most high schoolers, or at least in the 1980s, I had like a classic rock phase. The junior year, Living Colors, Vivid came out, and that mm. I wore that tape out. Had to buy a couple of different. I think that was my bridge to more like punk alternative, what became 90s alternative. Because when I went to college, that's when I discovered uh, Bob Mould, Who's Could Do. And that's where I really sort of went into the deep end and all that stuff.
0: There's a lot of good stuff coming out of there. What do you fall back on now? What are your musical preferences, I guess, if you were to tilt your speakers over your head?
2: Sure. It's probably not good for my hearing anymore. But (laughs) those are great memories because, you know, it was my my parents' record player. So fairly large speakers, I would just lay on the floor. Yeah. It's a little tunnel underneath. That's,
1: we had ca- we, we had the floor cabinet ones that like you would put a lamp on.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. These weren't quite that big. but It yeah. was part of our
1: living room. Yeah, it was I the think.
2: furniture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still – my favorites are still, you know, sort of 80s, 90s punk indie. You know, I do try to stay somewhat current. You know, I'm always on the lookout for, for newer bands, um, you know, friends. And actually now my daughter helps <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. in that aspect. So like recently for me – one of my recent sort of discoveries, you know, within the last few years, is a band called Pile from Boston, which I who I love. I think uh, Rick McGuire is one of the best lyricists working. You know, and th- their music sort of ranges like the early stuff can be almost like post-hardcore to more melodic and slower, like indie rock kind of stuff. I, you know, I playfully use a terrible word, but like <laughs> one of my favorite things I've done with my music is I, I I've been successfully able to stalk many of my favorite musicians mm. with my books. Oh, and then, you know, I've become Dad. friends with, you know, some of the bands that, you know, I grew up and just uh, listening to and admired. So, for example, like Paige Hamilton of Helmet, a huge Helmet oh, yeah. fan, especially the 90s stuff. And this was actually even before my majorly published stuff. I had a short story collection that was independently published called In the Meantime, which I named after, you know, Helmet That's, record yeah. and song,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, and I mailed it to him and like didn't think I would hear and he's but he's a big reader. He's like, oh, this is great. And, you know, he left me backstage passes and, you know, we hit it off, became friends and, you know, I've done the same thing with Neil Fallon, A Clutch. You know, so many of these guys are musicians are big readers. That's yeah, so uh, cool. Neil Fallon is a huge science fiction fan. Which probably oh, no isn't way. a surprise. Yeah. Like, you know, some of his record, Psychic Warfare, that song is really about Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I've, you know, I've been able to meet Neil a couple times, super nice guys. And I don't know, like for me, again, it's a way to get close to things that I really enjoy. And I always make sure every book I have an epigraph or I quote from some lyrics that gives me an excuse to contact
0: bands and ask permission for lyrics. Oh yeah. There you go. Yes. Yeah. If you can't use uh whatever level of fame you have to geek out on, I mean, what's it good for?
1: Exactly. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. We've covered music, um, movies and books.
2: Oh, well, well any big inspirations uh, there? Oh yeah. I mean, for me, almost all my books start with, a certain book or a or, or movie, usually a book now these days, but, you know, I, I try to read, not try, I typically read between 60 and 80 books a year uh, and have done so That's since, Amount. <laughs> you know, since, you know, like, I guess the mid nineties, part of that was like a fear of like, I have to catch up because I wasn't an English major and I wasn't mm-hmm. a huge reader as a kid. So like, I feel like I'm always playing catch up, which isn't a bad thing to feel like. Sure. No. And I feel like my writing is getting worse if I'm not reading, uh, so yeah, everything I read informs what I do, you know, even if the lesson is this is what you shouldn't do, <laughs> you know, that, that's sometimes a hard, harder lesson to learn to, or to be able to, to sort of explain to yourself, okay, this is why you don't like this. You know, let's try not to do that. And you're and the thing that you're working on kind of thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: You know, and I feel, yeah, I would, I would just end by saying, I feel super fortunate that I have so many friends who are working within the horror genre now as well, whose work is, is amazing. And they, Continually push and inspire, you know people like John Langan and Nadia Bulkin, Laird Barron, Sarah Langan, you know, and a whole host of others.
1: It's hmm. awesome. I, I actually, it, it's funny as I was um, going through Head Full of Ghosts, I, I found it funny because I'm like sort of reading. I was trying to explain it to my wife. I'm okay. like, because you have the the you know the comment, the running commentary of the the blog kind of going on, yeah. Which it's like as as uh, you know the the events are transpiring in the house. I'm like, oh, you know, the, just sort of reading it at face value. And then you self-reflexively within the same story are like, no, 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 this is just a hack. They clearly took this from this. And this story yeah. was inspired by that. I, was, I thought that was a really interesting choice. But it also hey. kind of showed a lot of what your, you know, influences were. And I thought that was cool to see how it sort of threaded through.
2: Yeah. In some ways, I felt like that book was like my <laughs> my grad school thesis on horror, like what I liked, what I didn't like. Yeah. You know, once I knew I couldn't avoid the William Peter Blady. Um, William Friedkin sort of elephants in the room. Like if you're gonna mm-hmm. write a possession story, sure, you, you can't hide from that. That sort of freed me up to reference like as much as I could. And I thought that was a fun way to build the ambiguity instead of withholding information. I was bombarding the reader with every piece of information possible. Um, Absolutely. You know, and I thought that was a cool way to do it. And, you know, and have it reflect sort of like <laughs> the times that we're we're surviving through right now. And
0: then, <laughs> yes,
1: also organically go through all the movies that. You know, they go through the collection of movies on the shelf. It's like, if, if, you, yeah. if you enjoyed this book, you should also check out.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Readers of this uh, yeah, book also enjoyed. <laughs>
1: that's, that's,
0: uh, that's interesting. So you're sort of like diluting the information by, you know, bombarding the reader with information just too much all the time. Yeah, exactly. So you studied this a bit in grad school, but you didn't study writing as much growing up. Is that what I pulled from that? Yeah. Well, I didn't. I mean, grad school for me was
2: math, so I still didn't even study it. (laughs) I have not studied it formally. You know, it's not to say I didn't have like friends and other writers sort of, you know, helped me along the way. But do you think that's what informed
0: like a less traditional style?
2: Oh, yeah. 100%. Like I've I've learned uh, writing from just reading all these different books, you know, and getting some advice from people. That includes like reading books about writing as well. But also like, you know, I, I gave myself permission to, you know, to let this take a while, like have a sort of longer, slow progression. It wasn't like... I was trying to make a living from writing right away. Um, you know, I've always I've been a you know a high school math teacher for a really long time, so that that gave me my shitty health insurance and <laughs> um, you know the financial safety net, so I could sort of yeah. just muck around and experiment and fail and get better and you know just sort of go from there.
0: Interesting. Well, you've pumped out a number of books in what seems like a short time. I'm sure, it's not that short for you. <laughs> I was yeah, say, I you, know, for, you know, for
2: sure. yeah, the last ten years certainly have been a lot of stuff, but yeah. Yeah, I probably started getting serious about writing in the early 2000s. You know, it was mainly short stories. You know, found my first agent, or I shouldn't say first, that applies. He, he's not the same agent. I found my literary <laughs> agent in
1: 2006. Does he know he's your first um, agent? He does know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like the guy who introduces his wife as his first wife. Right, right. <laughs> he's still married too. <laughs> yeah. No, and there was
2: like a, in 2009, 2010, I published a couple of books with a big publisher and that didn't go so well. So, like there was a – I thought I had made it then and then obviously he hadn't. It's been a few years being sad and bitter, but I was able to, I was lucky to get a second chance and a second life with a head full of
1: ghosts. God, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. And kept pushing through. So, I mean, just for anyone who's listening to this, that might not understand what I say with a less traditional style (laughs) before, but you know, the kind of meta look, like the multi-narratives, the unreliable narrator, there's a lot going on. It's just kind of like stories on top of stories. And you pull that out in All Bearers Club too, Mm. which Ken and I were talking, we're curious what the editing process looked like on that, just because it's so specific about the layout in that book. Yeah. You know, I mean, did you have it handed that? Like you couldn't just turn that over to a publisher and say, here, figure it out.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I sort of did. And it kind of bit me in, in one sense, but not really. Yeah. So like, the, I, I will say the editing for that book was different than usual. Although like I did turn in the book as it looks with the marginalia. Oh, uh, you did. Yeah. Okay. You know, and I, I was able to, you know, ones like I knew I really couldn't explain it otherwise to the to the design teams like this is what it should look like and it and it wasn't that hard I just use like Microsoft Word like I didn't have to use any special sort of writing software like Scrivener that I, you know I can't imagine having to learn something else like that yeah you I know, just use like text box and you can you can put those pretty much wherever you want
1: have it all line up yeah so mm-hmm. for me I
2: was actually that was a lot of the fun of writing that book was so I didn't like generally I didn't just like write all sort of the art barber parts and then go back and then put comments. And I sort of, I put the comments in as I went, you know, for a lot of it, some of that was just like, mercy is in some ways like the voice of my own inner editor. So it was just kind of fun to like, you know, to be able to, to put that wise ass to use (laughs) sometimes. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I've got another question, but I, I want to hold off on that for a second. Yeah. Because, uh, you mentioned at least to me, like in an email that Paul Bear's club was your most, uh, personal work. I'm curious how so.
2: Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, I think most, almost all my stuff, there's some element of autobiogra- autobiography in there somewhere, sure. you know, but this one, I very much leaned into it. Um, You know, I sort of imagined the main character, Art Barbara as sort of an alternate universe me, you know, if I had dropped out of college to become a, a failed punk musician,
0: and <laughs> also had like a, a
2: weird maybe vampire <laughs> friend, which I didn't have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, so, I mean, the, the starting points a lot of these things were me, but at the same time, like once you get into the writing, this character becomes totally different, like you know, for one, Art Barbara is a, an only child and, you know, I have two siblings I'm very close with. So, you know, I said I didn't put them in because I didn't want to have to juggle thousands of characters. Oh, man. Sorry, sure. Dan and Aaron. Yep. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the short version is, yes, it's, you know, sort of very personal. And to go back to the editing question, the the harder part of editing for me was since I use so many autobiographical things, sometimes directly, sometimes obliquely. When going through it, I'm like, oh, that's that bit's clever because this actually happened to me and I did this with it, but I had to like, it was hard to become objective and be like, well, no reader's going to know that it's clever because of that reason you know? So then it's like, does this serve the story in some way? So when I turned it into my editor, she, she didn't really have a lot of like direct edits. Like you must do this, this, and this. I mean, she was just like, yeah, you know, can you, you know, this needs to be tightened up, Um, (laughs) you know, in, in a longer way of saying it essentially. So, you know, I did go back and cut like 30 pages, you know, of stuff, which is sort yeah. of unusual for me because I do a lot of editing as I write. And it's not okay. to say that my final draft I turn in is perfect. It's definitely not. But it's unusual for me to have to, like, either take out that many words or add, like, other things. So, yeah, that, that book was a challenge to edit. Uh just to try to get outside of my own head a little bit. <laughs>
1: uh, it's interesting. Your stories seem very, very tight. I wonder if you tend to. Do you find that, well, But you just kind of answered it. But the, as far as the editing process goes, do you tend to overshoot and then pull back, or are there places where you're going? All right, I need to put more into this.
2: Um, I don't know. Sort it, of it, it depends on the book. I mean, I, I've turned in. I've been lucky, like the Camothy in the world, when I turned it in. Like we almost had like zero edits, other you know, fixing typos and syntax and yeah. stuff like that. There's plenty mm-hmm. of that stuff. Really, I only changed like one thing. I changed a, a section of that book that was originally second person. I changed it back to, to third person. But that was it. But then, you know, I've had like a book like I mentioned, Paul Bear's Disappearance of Devil's Rock was similar, where I ended up cutting like 10,000 words, 30 pages, but then adding in, like, another five. Oh, wow. that, of all the books, that was probably the one that was like, when I turned it over, I said, help. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, it's sort of just story dependent or book dependent, I guess.
1: I've, okay. I have a question on the on the art part of it, too, because, like, so um, obviously you take a lot of pride, or at least it becomes a part of the book itself, like the visual style of it. So in, like, Survivor Song, you know, you have yeah. very, very different looking pages for the interludes of the kind of things that are happening outside mm-hmm. of time. Was that something that you had put in as well, or is that a collaborative effort with the the? Yeah, or? obviously
2: that one was a little bit more collaborative, like – I definitely wrote like different fonts. Like uh, I think for, for those sort of special chapters, I, I, I use what I thought of as like a storytelling looking font or like an older font. Comic uh, And they they came back with the idea of like, <laughs> oh, we're going to have these pages in different colors. I and mean, am like, oh, that's pretty cool. Make it look storybook or some way. Yeah. So that was certainly uh, collaborative, which is fun. You know, I enjoy that part of it. You know, because I'm certainly no expert in design. But at the same time, you know, it was important to me because I felt like it was important to the story that, Those aspects, those visual aspects were there, obviously, in Paul Bearer's Club. Um, You know, for me, the other part of the trick is, like, if you have a cool, what you think is a cool narrative tweak or a way to present something, you have to make sure it's there for a reason and not there just because you think it looks cool. Right. Sure.
1: So it's not just self-serving and it has to move something forward.
2: Yeah. Well, hopefully it's both. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't mind serving the self,
0: (laughs) so to speak. Sure. I mean, when you're writing novels, you have some liberties, right, to, uh, you know, really stretch it out and pad it up a bit.
2: Yeah. My editor groans. I mean, she's the best. Uh, I just love that she's sort of like no bullshit and like doesn't hold back. (laughs) Sorry, Jen. But uh, yeah, I've threatened like, oh, the next book is going to have like pop up pages so we can have like a jump scare (laughs) or hologram. She's like, no, it's like I won't. I promise. Just do it all,
1: uh, <laughs> all with QR codes, just QR codes yeah. on every other page. And you just, and it just scared. Definitely going to have to use QR code Thanks. at some point for sure.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I mean, to me, it becomes like, well, like, and I become really sort of like my feet stuck or I really become trenchant about it because, I'm like, no, this is how the story has to be presented. There's a reason, like, it's part of the theme, et cetera. And if I can't explain to myself, I certainly can't explain to somebody else why it has to be there. So if I can't explain it, then it goes away or I have to wait. Like, I had a novella I wrote called, notes from the dog walkers that was in a short story collection. Mm -hmm. And it's presented as literal notes left by dog walkers uh, of a writer. You know, so the notes start off like, oh, Holly was great today. We took her out. Pee, check, poop, check. Okay. And, and the notes start to become unhinged. And I was like, oh, that's going to be, you know, because we had, if, you know, uh, geez, like I guess eight years ago at this point, we adopted a dog. The kids were in high school. So it wasn't like people were home all the time. It's so like we should get a dog walker a few days a week. And I just thought the notes were hilarious. <laughs> and I would try to write <laughs> fake notes, and my family knew right away they were from me. Uh, <laughs> but it took me a couple of years to figure out, like, I wanted to write a story using notes from dog walkers, but I was like, well, what story needs to be told that way? <laughs> it took me a long time to, to find a way into it. Um, right, but I'm cool. glad I did.
0: That's to awesome. that. That's fun. I like stories like that where, um, you know, you're not really telling what happens. It's a lot of reading between the lines.
2: No, I, those are my favorite kind of stories. I mean, that's like the difference between other modes of art is that I think more so than other forms, you're being asked to work. You're being asked to fill in stuff. You know, your imagination is supposed to be, uh, Working with the writer as you're reading, um, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. you know, I fear that I fear that people are losing that in some ways. I'm sure everyone's, I'm sure writers have said that for like centuries, but, Right. you know, especially now with all the sort of digital distractions and what some readers, you know, only want from books as opposed to actually being sort of challenged and engaged. I mean, to me, that's what makes books special.
0: I agree. Blame the uh, the YA category.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's ter- <laughs> it's certainly there in the adult category too.
0: Yeah, yeah. So one thing that I picked up from. Everything I've read of yours is—you said you didn't take any English classes or any writing classes, I guess, right? Formally, one of the things they teach you is about character arc. So I'm sure you've read this, and obviously you know this yeah. by this point. And for anyone that doesn't know, you know, it's like the send a man up a tree idea. You know, the guy right. goes up the tree, yes. you throw rocks at him, like right. he needs to go over some kind of what am I looking for? Like some kind of challenge, right? So he's sure. He can evolve and come out a better and stronger person. It really stands out to me the way the amount you lean into that and what you put your characters through. You know, you're not necessarily throwing rocks at them in the tree. It's like you're yeah. cutting down the tree and then kicking them and then throwing <laughs> rocks at them. And then yeah. they may or may not make it out the other side. Yeah. I don't know. I
2: mean, part of my inner sort of contrarian is, especially now as I'm getting older, it's like, oh, not all stories have to fit, especially when it comes to movies. Um, it doesn't have to have a three act structure. I couldn't tell you what's the first act, second act, or third act. I mean, it's more. I'm sort of. I can't break things down like that. Certainly not scripts. Yeah. But I mean, it, it, to me, it goes by feel. To me, it's like an interrogation of every part of the story. Like if I, I'm, I'm certainly going to be wrong. But if it, at the very least, by the time I finish a story or a novel, if I can justify to myself why this paragraph is here, why the sentence is here. And it stays. And hopefully, you know, hopefully the the whole is a, you know, works as a story. Um, so I, to me, I like I get much more interested in, so I guess, the, those granular details as opposed to like, oh, hey, this is where the first act ends or the second. And to me, that's so boring. I don't I don't understand <laughs> the appeal. Or I mean, I guess I just don't understand story that way. Right. Um, you know, which is fine. Like other people do. And that's great. I can't.
1: As a math teacher, you'd think there might be some more proclivity there to sort of be looking for the formula for it. Not, not, and I don't mean that in a cliche yeah. way, but just saying, like you know, putting things in an orderly way, in you know, an orderly fashion. Yeah, way, I
2: think maybe actually- the math part comes from like the zero and ones, like the granular part of it. Like this choice here, the one branches off to here, and so like I, I definitely do think uh, if I use math at all, it's sort of some of the logic of, particularly books like A Head Full of Ghosts and Camathia in the World. You know, I try to feel like I've considered every possibility, obviously, not maybe not every, but as much as I could possibly consider before I arrive to the conclusion that I arrive to, you know, and it maybe it's not a great ending, but I, I can assure readers, even the ones, even the bastards that don't like it, <laughs> that, you know, I've, you know, like, uh, you know, I've considered all other possible endings, or at least the ones that I thought were worth considering. Um, and for better or worse, those are the ones that I chose.
0: Yeah. It's always hard to wrap things up in the right way. (laughs) You know, when you're looking for the right way and there is no right way and it's, what do you think is the best solution?
1: Yeah. I, uh, on the, the topic of character abuse, and it's just a, a random question as a writer. <laughs> character abuse, I like that. Just, are you, do you know who's going to eat it before you start writing? Like your, <laughs> your books didn't have, have quite a body count at times.
0: That's right. Writers usually become attached to the characters they I, write. I was you,
1: like, is there some place where you're like, cause I mean, you know, I mean, you said you read Stephen King. Yeah. So like I read, you know, the whole dark tower trilogy and yeah. the, I don't want to spoiler alert things, sure. but you know, certain people die and enough. at the end I'm like, right. Oh God, I'm like, I feel like, like, I knew that guy, you know? It's yeah. like, do you like? Do you know that going into it? You're like, all right, don't get too attached to this one because <laughs> you're not long <laughs> for this world.
2: Yeah, you know, for most novels, I generally, well, at some point I know the beginning. <laughs> and then I, I feel like I know the ending. Or it, sometimes it can be hazy, sometimes it can be actually really fixed, and then the hard part becomes how do I get from A to Z. But again, every, every book can be a little bit different. But yeah, in terms of the main characters, I sort of know... Who's, who's going to make it? Who's not going to make it? You know, so with Cabin, that story was always going to happen with that certain character's death. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I knew that was going to be difficult for everybody involved. I still have a, a friend, former publicist, but good friend who still refers to me as a monster.
1: Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, it, so it, it's, it's, you laugh about it and hopefully they're laughing about it too. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but there is a little part of you, right, that's got to be like, well, you're putting it out there. And you're like, oh, I don't know. Why, why, why would you do that? You didn't have to do Yeah, it. well, I mean – you do. But you do for the art. I think it's awesome. I think Right.
2: Also, like, I think it's important – well, not important, but like if, if something like, you know, violence is going to happen in a lot of horror stories. Not all of them have to have violence. But like I try to honor sort of the experience of that character – and even the people who are witnessing it because it's such a fundamental transgression yeah. that's going to change everybody, obviously, right. the person the violence occurred to, but even sort of the perpetrators as well.
0: You know, you gently it, remove the predictability factor. You know, Going into any of your books, they you don't know how they're going to
2: go. Well, listen, I mean, it would be one thing if I was writing the novelization of Evil Dead 2 which believe me, I would love to. <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> right. You know, where violence is being used differently there. And, sure. uh, yeah, you know, I just haven't written a slapstick <laughs> part how did, how of comedy we- yet. So maybe someday, I don't know, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I guess I get it. I, I try to purposely, well, not like make people care about those characters because I'm trying to be sadistic or cruel, but like, no, to me, like this character meant something. Mm-hmm. It was worth something like was a, a real, you know, in the universe of this world was a real, so you should feel something. Uh, I, I think I would I think it would be worse if like it just was a throwaway sort of character that I right. it and there's no yeah, sure. there's no meaning to that. There's no not that there's meaning to it, maybe that's the anti-meaning. I don't know. It's hard to talk about that. Yeah, Boiling right. yeah. stuff or or I don't know, or sounding self-serving.
0: Okay. I think it's time for a quick break. At this point during the conversation, a storm knocked out power at Paul's house. Fortunately, he was able to use his phone to join us again. So let's get back to it
1: and we're back i was saying the uh the i feel like the zoom gods are, are 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 uh you know benevolent so to speak because you were frozen just on this beautiful like moment of thinking like <laughs> as, the, as though uh, he had asked you this really deep question you're like hmm, well, i'm I gonna just...
2: knock a wood but i've never used my phone as a hotspot before it, oh. it
0: well, it's be pretty it's very clean yeah I we know. noticed the trees weren't swaying in the background and then when we figured <laughs> it out we were worried one like came through the window <laughs>
1: So uh, anyway, so we're, we're, I don't remember where we were.
0: Uh, I think I was trying to compliment you, and that's why it cut off. That was it, so, Yeah, <laughs> yeah we we're
2: talking about violence and stories, but yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah. I, so I was just saying that that was a testament to your characters or a testament to your writing, really, that you can write a diverse set of characters that are not wholly you and that you can get people to care about them. You know, I mean, they're all interesting and they're yeah. believable. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That's not easy to do.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, again, to go back to what we were talking about before about, you know, engaging the reader, making, you know, inviting the reader to do some of the work uh, or joining in the work is, I don't know how to explain to do it. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not successful always, but, you know, I, I like the idea of like leaving enough space for the reader to bring their own sort of experiences or to fill in some of those details for 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 this character or for, for that other character.
0: You said you hadn't gotten into uh, script writing. The three-act structure is, it, it's a whole different type of writing. It's very specific. Have you dabbled in that any yet?
2: Uh, A little bit. I mean, I did write, uh, so I guess very little. I wrote a screenplay, a version of a screenplay for a short story just to try it out. Of course, I couldn't even, I couldn't resist making it like a weird narrative, (laughs) even within the the movie frame of it. Yeah. Um, You know, I, I would like to try, if should I get an opportunity to adapt something of mine? You know, I think, you know, just even just having a little bit more control you know, it would be sort of a cool thing, you know, depending on the story. Mm-hmm. I, was, I don't know. I'm sure I could fudge. But like, here's the thing. Oh, yeah. The first act ends on this page or that second act ends here. Yeah. I have not Go for it.
0: <laughs> right. It's very technical. It's a visual form of writing as opposed to, you know, this long form narrative.
2: Yeah. No, I do enjoy sort of that that aspect of it, um, of being able to tell the story without, you know, dipping into the head or, or, or things like that. Like that. Yeah. But like at the same time, it's like it doesn't have to be three acts. I mean, the rest of the world doesn't make movies in three acts. Like if you, no. you know, particularly if you ever watched any, you know, Korean or, or Japanese horror movies, like, you know, The sure. Wailing has, I don't know, maybe oh. seven acts. I have no
0: idea. It's fantastic. I love the movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so how'd you feel about Knock at the Cabin?
2: Uh, I, I like the movie. I really don't like the ending. Wasn't a fan of the lack of <laughs> acknowledgement in the lead up to the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, uh, you know, a pretty, a very cool experience, uh, you know, seeing that. the the collaborative parts, yeah,
0: getting to visit the set was really interesting and cool. That must've been wild for something that you created on the page, you know?
2: Yeah, no, that was definitely very strange. Um, you know, and meeting everybody was, uh, is an awesome, you know, one of my favorite parts of the experience and the actors were super cool and nice and they had all read the book too, which was really nice. You know, I wasn't sure if they had or not. Right. Right. <laughs> um. You know, all that part of it was like, it feels, you know, now that we're almost like a year out from when that movie came out, it feels like a weird dream. Like, i I'm like, oh, yeah, that happened. That
1: happened. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that, that did happen. Did you find that that changed um, anything for you? Like, uh, I just, you know, now walking around daily life, you know, was there like a swell of things or could you walk big time people now? People, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Lord oh, over I mean,
2: them? yeah, my very sort of like small world micro fame. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, Just like it allowed me to take a year off from teaching, which was amazing.
1: That's awesome.
2: Um, You know, it's going to pay for a big chunk of my daughter's college, not all of it. (laughs) Um, But so, yeah, like, I mean, what about lifestyle?
1: What about lifestyle-wise? Just like people talking to you differently. You go walk in front of your students and they're like, oh my God, I saw your movie this weekend. And you're like, oh, you probably should. Yeah. So, I mean, I
2: wasn't in school like when the movie was coming out. So maybe that would have been a little bit more, but you know, Mm. uh, but sure, kids are, are interested and they ask me about it. I'm still their math teacher, though. So, I mean, that, that level of uncoolness just cannot yeah. overcome
1: the <laughs> other great. parts
2: of it. But, you know, I've kind of knocked at the cabin poster in my room and cool. stuff like that. So,
1: yeah. Very cool. do
2: you that's question, very fun.
1: Do you question their parents allowing them to see, see
2: that? <laughs> 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 no, I think that's actually a fairly light R rated movie yeah. uh, as far as ours go. Yeah. yeah I
0: mean, it gets heavy toward the end. And I see what you mean about the ending. Like, again, it's a visual medium. So yeah. they made the ending a little more uh, apparent.
2: Yeah, and I don't even know if that was a function of – That's I, to me, that's less a function of the the media decision they made with a certain character uh, and also to make it, like, less ambiguous, yeah. you know, which is the reason why I really don't like the ending because I think it just fundamentally changes the, the why of the, the original story. Right. I mean, the movie is mm-hmm. its own story, you know, which is fine. People always say, oh, like, you know, the book will always be there. but But, you know, the weird part is that, you know, the vast majority of the people who know the story are going to be – is going to be the movie version
0: right yeah i mean it's a great setup and it's just a master class intention well thank you it's, it's it's very cool i like you know the self-contained um pieces of suspense yeah
2: yeah yeah seven people in a, in a cabin right yeah
0: hmm so uh did that lead to anything else um film wise do you have any other books optioned
2: um yeah i mean uh sure For, i mean there was there was certainly more options you know, i was kind of hoping and part of that year off, I spent a bunch of time with a couple of young filmmakers pitching like a, an adaptation of one of my short stories as a, as a feature, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. which is which is a fun learning process, and I learned a lot from Natasha and Brea, the, the two filmmakers I'm working with, and hopefully it'll still happen, but you know it didn't quite go. But I I think the movie that's closest to being a thing is Survivor Song. Yeah, you know, we'll see. Like you know, it took Cabin what five years from when it was first options to to make wow. it to the screen and. Wow. You know, something like Head Full of Ghosts has been an option since 2015 and, right, yeah, isn't there yet, may never make it there. You just never know. Like, despite all the things that make it (laughs) onto our screens, it seems to be a minor miracle that anything ever gets, certainly on the adaptation side of things.
0: Sure. I mean, there's a lot of hands involved. It's a lot of people's opinions. If you were to pick something, what would it be?
2: Well, I mean, I guess, I mean, I would love to see, I'd love to see anything, but, you know, hopefully someday we'll have something involving Head Full of Ghosts. Mm Mm-hmm whether it's like a limited series or, 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 a, or a movie or a yeah. show, I'll take it all. <laughs> that,
1: that's what, what I, one of the things I was wondering about now, you know, obviously with the advent of all the streaming services over the last you know decade, you know, I, I would think there are a lot more avenues to be able to get something like that out there and also longer form, right? So doesn't it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be confined, like you were just saying about the three act play, you know, like it doesn't have to be confined like that and you can have, you know, five, four episodes, you know, and really tell a story. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I mean, I, right. I know you would think the amount of money, like just seeing like person needs to be money from somewhere. Like, I don't know where those millions come from. I mean, I, right. I guess I do know from studios, but like, sure. you know, Cam and Knock the Cam was a $25 million movie and being on set, it was like, holy shit. Like this is 25 million, like all these people, army of people, you know, this cabin built inside of a warehouse. And, you know, I know there was another set that was probably like second year, like a ton of money. Uh, And a ton of people, Um, you know, and I would say if you're in the studio system more so than major than major publishing, um, I mean, because this is part of major publishing is becoming more so a major part of publishing too. the idea that money and sales only are driving this. I mean, I think that's always been there, but, you know, with the increase of business folks whose only knowledge of mathematics or spreadsheets and, you know, supposed data, um, (laughs) supposed data interpretation. Mm-hmm. you know contextless almost you know some of these decisions are being made that way you know not in terms of is this an art does this have is this story have artistic merit is this story fun will people
1: right. be will drawn people like
2: to it, it all trying to fit like a formula right Yeah, you know, it's funny i'm becoming more anti-math <laughs>
1: in my exposure to it <laughs> is how it's used and sort of how Stop it's using used my math in, against me
2: yeah <laughs> in the commercial sort of art world yeah yeah so i don't know like i mean there's those realities uh Of, of working with big studios, which is uh, to me, it's not, it's no surprise that, you know, almost universally, my favorite horror movies are all independently produced with maybe the exception of like Jordan Peele's movies, but I think that's a case where he has enough clout. He can overrule studio interference and make the movies how he wants to make them, you
0: know? Seems like it. Yeah. They're fantastic. So, uh, I won't keep you too much longer, but I've got a couple sort of wrap ups. Um, sure horror in general. I mean, you've stuck to horror since day one, it seems like. And I want to say not even always horror. Like, I don't see you writing creature features and, Mm -hmm. you know, like real gory, schlocky stuff. I mean, they're almost like psychological thrillers if you
1: Mm -hmm.
0: reel back a bit. But I mean, is that your comfort zone? Is that where you want to stay? Like,
2: (laughs) I mean, it probably is my comfort zone. I don't know if it is where I always want to stay. Like, when I first started writing, everything was a horror short story, essentially. Um, and then weirdly, as I was starting to write, try to write novels, those novels were more like sort of dark satirical comedies. Uh-huh. And this this was stuff that wasn't necessarily published. I think part of that came from like I had a, a, a friend who was a really good writer uh, read a short story of mine that was published. Said, wow, that was a really good story. It would have been really good even without the horror element. And that really sort of took me back. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm not a badge wearing horror writer. I'm a writer who writes horror. And to me, that was a, a really important lesson in serving the story, not trying to force it to be something it's not. So that, coupled with, you know, I'm very fortunate that my publisher gives me a very wide leeway with what might be considered horror dark fiction. Sure. Um, you know, it could be something like The Paul Bearers Club or, you know, Cabinets and the World. I think it's two very different approaches, you know, uh, to a horror story or a story that has horror elements in it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I've, uh, I think the next novel I'm going to start might be a little bit different in some ways but i don't know hopefully hopefully they're all different in some ways i don't want to write yeah. rewrite the same books uh, i think that would be bad <laughs> <laughs> right you know it's, it's that balance of like leaning into your obsessions but at least presenting them in a different way in <laughs> a different kind of story
0: yeah I, I mean i think you've done a good job at writing like you said stories first characters first really and then just putting them in uncomfortable situations yeah uh and <laughs> that could go any direction. So it's not just like a monster of the week sort of thing.
2: Right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. That's, uh, it's fun. That's why I like reading uh, somebody who can write a lot of different types of uh, stories. That's a yeah, long same. way of just saying <laughs> <laughs> you're a good writer.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it. No, my favorite writers are people who've like sort of jumped around like Stuart O'Nan, who's like a mentor to me. Like he, he you know, especially his early works were all sort of all over the place, different genres. And he, was a much different publishing climate in the late '90s, early 2000s. I think he went through seven agents, one with each book, because <laughs> mm-hmm. each new agent was like, "I want you to write one like
1: whatever the you, one just, you just
2: wrote that I just sold." And he right. like, Nope. <laughs> uh, which I really admire, you know, and I hope the marketplace—I shouldn't even use that phrase—hell, publishing, <laughs> you know, still has room for writers like that.
0: I mean, I hope so. That's you know, that's where you're gonna get the best stories. And somebody who gets very good at one thing is obviously gonna repeat the same thing. It's that muscle memory, but somebody mm-hmm. who can expand or try different things, like that's how you learn and grow and how you get better at each of those. I mean, maybe you're gonna find that you're a great um romance writer one day. You
1: know? <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> Can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. The love of her life. It was murdered. Murdered on a train. <laughs> I have a deep-seated
2: fear of – I don't have very many sex scenes in my novels. And part of that is because I have this real fear of – Appearing on like a bad sexist – a bad sex scene list that they have at the end uh, of every okay. year. <laughs> that would just yes. be totally – that would be totally
1: mortifying. I, yeah. I just think – I, I just think putting that out there, and it's uh, honestly for me, it's a little bit in the same way of like the really gruesome, horrible, violent deaths. I'm like, it's really interesting to put yourself out there in that way and be yeah. writing that on the page and say, hey, okay, you know, everybody, read, read, read my yeah. thoughts on this. Sure, <laughs> so mm-hmm. of course,
2: a romance novel wouldn't have to have sex scenes in it either. Um, I, I mean, Ro- I do have an idea for a sort of weird romanti, you know, it'd be a romance within the other story, but who knows. Well, that's interesting. For me, mu-
1: uh, I'm gonna go back to the music thing real quick. Um, I just wanted to ask real quick, what was a great band that you saw recently? Like, is there have you been out to see dude live? Uh yeah, you know,
2: so I mentioned Pile. that was like the last show that I saw, and it was my first time getting to see them, and I was blown away. I saw them at the Sinclair in Cambridge. Yeah. Next year I already have tickets to see Swans, which I'm really excited about, and a band that I've become friendly with, uh McCluskey. It's a UK band. Okay. I think I um, think hmm. Became Future of the Left. That's how I sort of got into Future of the Left and Andy Falcos' music. He was someone I hit up for a, a Epigraph and headful of Ghosts. Oh, okay. And we sort of hit it off and became friendly. And you know, and I got to hang out with him a couple of times and I went to London. But there, his, his old band, McCluskey, is coming to the US finally this spring. So in March, so I'm super excited for that show.
1: Very cool. So I love going to live music as well and all that stuff. And- oh, Yeah. Uh, lucky enough to have a friend who's very close, uh, with one of the main venues around here. And so I get to sort of get up close and personal and stuff. And it's amazing. Just, you know, And I like to leech onto
0: Ken for that (laughs) relationship so that I can get up (laughs) close and personal too. yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: The last thing that I was going to say, too, is um, if you haven't yet, um, I, you know, and sort of just making sure that I cover all my bases and in looking into this, I uh, looked you up on Spotify. Mm-hmm. So, um, have you seen the Paul Tremblay on Spotify? There is a there is a seven song EP of music by someone named Paul Tremblay. That is oh, like really? sort of, no, yes, it. uh, this is what you're gonna do next, I bet. Uh okay. yes, it is a seven, <laughs> like it's like a seven song EP of like synthy classical sort of dance music. Oh, good for that, I Paul. Like, I was like, Well, I don't think that's him. It could be no I've yet I've yet to be
2: confused with that, Paul Tremblay. Yeah. Really there was a Paul who who's like a crossfit uh bodybuilding competitor. <laughs> and I've you work considered a better one to be mistaken yeah, for <laughs> right occasionally like those streams will cross my favorite one was I got a Facebook message from some giant guy I he was giant in uh, Iceland it's like hey Paul you know we're gonna have this competition like in a few weeks we're gonna get ripped and like lift all these heavy things like we'd love to have you out here <laughs> I was really tempted to be like just, just it. It. like just lean into it I had to tell him I was like I think you have the wrong Right. You have the wrong hand. <laughs> My other favorite, someone tweeted about this Paul Tremblay who could apparently do a lot of squats and said, Paul <laughs> Tremblay ass king, because he can, <laughs> wow. he, can, he can squat a lot of weight. Wow. Uh, that, that, your that's the next book. there.
1: Never miss leg. <laughs> Never miss leg day.
2: Yeah. I will say, so it's not on Spotify, <laughs> but for the Paul Bearers Club, I did release a four song EP on Bandcamp under did the name really? of the Paul Bearers Club. Yeah. Oh, that's um, awesome. So like- I perform like a couple of songs that art plays and mentions in the book. And also my, So my sons a music, what uh, graduated with a degree in music production. So like, he's a wizard with recording stuff on his laptop. So uh, awesome. did those two songs, it was almost like a horror Partridge family. Myself, Cole, and my daughter did a cover of uh neutral milk hotels, King of carrot flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the fourth song, I asked Cole just to do like a movie spooky soundtrack song for Paul Barry's Club. And he whipped it up at like an hour and it was amazing. Uh, that's so that's
0: cool. Amazing.
1: That's
2: got to yeah, be Yeah. So it so was a lot of that's fun. Much. It was just an excuse to make my kids talk to me while we were recording. <laughs> it's a project. We're a project. Yeah. <laughs> right. that's I'm trying to force so my fulfilled. kids
0: to play instruments and they're just not taking yet. No. How I have to be more aggressive. Uh, eight and 11.
1: Oh yeah. There's time. Yeah.
0: yeah. We'll yeah, get there. I, uh, I didn't start until I was 12 or 13.
1: Really? Wow. Yeah. I played saxophone like from fourth grade. My son started playing saxophone. My daughter plays trumpet and all that stuff. I had a very musical yeah. family, so.
2: Mm. so you could do like Fishbone records with your kids. That, that's, that's the goal. <laughs> that's the goal. We're
1: gonna have, uh, yeah, like a, 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 band. a solid brass section. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, nice. Yep. And, I'll, and I'll fumble around on acoustic guitar. That's gonna be our twist. and gonna be all acoustic. It's gonna be great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll be right up front. Okay, so. <laughs> In the essence of keeping this, or it's making this a little more of a travel-themed podcast as well. Mm-hmm. I'm curious: Do you live far from Beverly now?
2: Uh, it's probably like a 15 minute drive, you know, with no traffic, which is highly rare. Did
0: you say 50 <laughs> in or 15, but
2: five, uh, five zero. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, that's not terrible at all. No. So, an old friend comes to visit you, someone you want to spend time with. Where are you taking them for dinner, drinks, and to see a show
2: in Beverly, or? Or it could be anywhere like sort of in this area. Uh, let's say
0: Beverly. I mean, that was their yeah, stomping yeah. grounds, what so you know. I say
2: I probably would take them to Providence <laughs> just because it's, <laughs> you know, less crowded than Boston and easier to get to. And I, I live like probably like 35 minutes from Boston with traffic and 35 from Providence with no traffic. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, it's funny. So Beverly, I mean, it's changed so much, but I would certainly take them to Copper Dog Books, which is a great independent bookstore right downtown Boston. Okay. Um, I mean, right downtown Beverly, excuse me, um, There's not Yeah, In you know, the downtown areas, you know, there's a bunch of new restaurants. So it was actually, I was there a couple of weekends ago. My mother still lives in Beverly. So we went to this little event at the bookstore and we tried this, um, Latin fusion place that was just across the way and it was wonderful.
0: So nice. Yeah. I don't
2: know if I have necessarily a necessarily go-to place, but you know, I enjoy trying new restaurants, you know, in an area that I sort of know. Okay. I wish I remembered the name.
0: <laughs> what about concert venues?
2: Yeah, so I mean, I don't know if there's really any concerts in Beverly, although there's the the Cabot Cinema, uh, which is this beautiful old cinema theater, which actually I guess they do do concerts now. My mother, I was like, the Red Hot Chili Peppers are playing there. I'm like, there's no way the Red Hot Chili Peppers are playing in Beverly. So I looked it up and it was the Red Hot Chili Pipers. uh, And it was like these uh, band of bagpipe playing people. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> I'm not oh making God. this up oh um, my so like, no ma it was the Red Hot Chili Pipers we can go if you'd like um,
0: <laughs> I want to know how many people bought tickets for the Chili Peppers to see that
2: yeah I, I think I guess we would go see the Red Hot Chili Pipers at the <laughs> Cabin Cinema when I was a kid every Sunday they had it ran for like 25 years it was a magic show Le Grand David I mean it was sort of like a a well known sort of North Shore thing that you know this mad, uh, magician troupe performed there for like 25-30 years Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also go. where I saw Watership Down on the big screen. So, yeah, oh. I, I guess maybe we could try to hit the the Cabot Cinema or the Cabot. They probably just call it the Cabot now.
0: Huh? interesting. Watership Down was one of the first like big novels I read when I was – I want to say mm-hmm. I was in like fourth grade or something.
2: Wow. Yeah, yeah. that was a weird one. That's a big That's one for fourth dark. grade. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I got into a lot of like real dark stuff. I read, started reading Stephen King then too. That's mm-hmm. obviously shaped my worldview yeah. early on. Yeah. <laughs> okay so how much of this stuff ends up in your books
2: uh most of it i mean i was a little actually with Paul bears club i was really sort of worried i feel like i emptied the bucket you know for that book but i was happy to find you know the bucket fills itself mm-hmm. maybe you know maybe now it's gonna be stories about like empty nest horror <laughs> right
0: <laughs> or something but
2: you know there's still something that yeah there's more of you to go into things
0: interesting well we've taken up a lot of your time and probably your phone battery too <laughs> yeah, Drew. I got to preserve. You're, in, you're quite in. it worked. No power yeah. mode. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Well, I appreciate it. This was really fun. Yeah. This is great talking to you. A lot of information.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Happy to be
2: here. Yeah. Cool. Super fun.
0: Well, thanks again, Paul. Uh, I hope you get power back soon and you. hope you have a nice holiday.
1: <laughs> thanks. You too.
0: <laughs> right. you too. All right. I got <laughs> see you. See you. You better
1: believe I'm going to go check out the band camp thing because I think that's awesome. Oh, for sure. 100%. Like, what a great side project thing to do. As a hey, we have time. Why don't we just throw this together and, and it'll be fun as a cool you know project?
0: I love it. Again, I want my lazy kids to do something like that.
1: It's really yeah. Like the music thing will probably come along. Do they have at, at St. James, do they have like a music program?
0: Yeah, they do. Beck loves music, he sings all the time. Loves yeah, the dance. He's
1: always got a lot of creative expression in him.
0: <laughs> it's a lot of expression for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh he I just gotta figure out how to trick him into doing it essentially because he will sit down and like just bang on my drum set and you know let's let's take some lessons together let's figure out and he's like no i know how to do it
1: i got it dad thanks
0: yeah i'm, <laughs> I, I'm good on this i can strum yeah. the guitar i don't need to know about those frets
1: right right uh but I, I would think probably the traditional way in of like you know playing an instrument in the band in, in school you know what i mean might be a good i'm saying i'm being dead serious as far as just getting the basic idea of there's oh, yeah. more, more to it so
0: Definitely. I played, um, the, <laughs> the drum, drum, singular snare drum yes. Yes. in elementary school. Yes. There you go. Then in middle school, um, guitar was very specifically because it looked cool.
1: Yes. <laughs> and probably not the style of guitar you're playing. Like, I don't, I don't know your middle school was, but my middle school was definitely not playing the style of guitar <laughs> that anybody would have wanted to play. Who was like, I want to be a play guitar. It's going to be awesome. No, they're doing like pseudo classical sort of guitar stuff. It was not like three chord stuff. It was like,
0: Oh no, 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 no. <laughs> I, uh, well, I did a little bit of a, like a jazz group in school. So that was like learning to play a little more formally, but everything else was just outside. Yeah. yeah it was yeah, like, I right. want to learn Pantera right away. Right. Just do that. I just yes. want to do that.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, actually for me, I think it was, uh, Metallica one, you know, the, the, that intro riff of Metallica one that yep. like, I was like, Oh, and then I realized I could do that. I was like, Oh God. And everything, everything
0: kind of went from there. I know. We I'm glad we picked a really, uh, simple places to start. Yes. <laughs> Good introduction. And, and then
1: I backed <laughs> down to
0: <laughs> just think if these schools would stop wasting their time with Christmas music and just teach one.
1: It's true. It's true. Really get them in the zone where they need to go. Or like I, I might make a push for uh, Paul Tremblay's, uh, seven song, uh, sort of, simp- uh, Cynthia, um, work to kind of get moved into that space. Cause I really feel like sure people would enjoy that
0: i agree more cool. horror partridge family
1: yeah oh yes exactly. exactly or yeah that i'm saying i i was going back to the uh, other paul tremblay the,
0: the, <laughs> the, the dj the, one the dj one not, <laughs> the it's not king. And,
1: and, and it's not even dj yes not not the asking not 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 the horror writer i'm going for the the other one <laughs> perfect uh, and You know, you talked about him writing uh, romance novels. Wait until you see the cover art for this. It'll really inspire you. I hope so. I'm sending it to you now. Cool, cool. Good job. Thank you. Good job. It was fun. You too.
0: All right, I'll talk to you. All right. See you, dude.